Thank you. Um, it's my privilege this morning uh, to get to be here. Uh, my name is Tyler Goresline, and normally, regularly, I get to serve as a lead pastor of a church community in South Lake Union called A Seattle Church. Um, one little caveat, you're not supposed to do that before you preach, but I love to stick around and catch up and like get to know who you are and what you're going through and all of that. And so, uh, and, and if any of this resonates or whatnot, or you take issue with it, I love to be available to that. I have to go preach at my own church after this. So you can always connect with me on the internet because we all have that. So um, you're welcome to, to meet me there if you would on social media or whatever. Um, there's probably a slide that shows you what that looks like. So um, a little, is there a photo of my family perhaps that we can show today? We good on that? Okay, so I uh, get to be married to Kimberly Marie Goresline, who I've been married to for the last 12 years. We met at Seattle Pacific University. We did not do ring by spring, contrary to popular belief. Uh, we got married the next year. We were so mature. <laughs> We had a bunch of life experience. Um, we have three little girls, Miriam, who is seven, uh, Evie or Evangeline, who is five, and then Arielle, uh, who is three. And don't let the picture fool you. Um, I went with them to Target yesterday, uh, and it was a nightmare. Uh, as much as they look adorable, and don't believe them. You can't trust them. You talk about Advent, we're talking about dark days a peaceless moment in time. You guys, you wouldn't believe this, but literally back in 2014, I had an uninterrupted thought and you should have seen it. It was astounding. That's a joke, guys. It's a good one. My kids are amazing. And in Target, they want every single thing. It's like there's something that they figured out with the DNA of um, ladies in the world and they love all the things at Target. And so uh, my life is one of much joy. It's filled. I'm blessed. I'm grateful to have these amazing people in it. And yet I'm not going to Target again this holiday season. Um, so I want to tell you a quick story. Last week um, up near Bethany Green Lake, I was at a coffee shop called Pilgrim Coffee and we were having our Friday morning men's study that we have. And a woman wandered in. Um, her name was Roxanne and she wandered in and she was topless and she was screaming because her eyes were burning um, for what she was saying that she was pepper sprayed. It was 6.30 in the morning. We had no idea. She's screaming. She's screaming. She's totally overwhelmed. The baristas jump into action. They go outside with her. They quickly connect with her. And they're just, they're getting water. They're tending to her. They're trying to help her. The group and myself were like, what should we help? What should we do? How do we intervene? And so we just feel compelled by the Holy Spirit to start praying. We start praying. Uh, we go connect with the baristas after this, the paramedics come. And I said, you know, how are you doing? Like, how was that? And they're like, we don't, What? we're okay. We were just so worried about Roxanne and we just wanted to make sure she got what she needed, um, that she could see uh, in the dark and in, and in the burning that was going on in her eyes. Um, and to me, guys, that's Advent. Like that's what Advent is all about. It's the season where somehow light breaks in to the darkness, to just this disarray, to the cloudiness, to this sense that Things are not the way that they ought to be, and yet somehow there's still hope. And so we like look deeply right in the face into the brokenness and the pain and the hurt. Um, Sarah Bessie, in one of uh, her books, writes it like this. She says, it's because everything hurts that we prepare for Advent. It's because we have stood in hospital rooms and gravesides, empty churches and quiet bedrooms that we resolutely lay out candles and matches. We don't get to have hope without having grief. 
Hope dares to admit that not everything is as it should be. And so if we want to be hopeful, first we have to grieve. First we have to see that something is broken. And there is a reason for why we need hope to begin with. Advent matters because it's our way of keeping our eyes, no matter how much they burn in our hearts, no matter how much they are breaking in a time like the one that we're in right now, and our arms all wide open, even in the midst of our grief and longing. So I don't know about you and where you find yourself in this Advent season and these ideas and these promises that maybe could feel stale, like, oh yeah, we know Jesus is coming, but But at the same time, Advent isn't just simply about that Jesus came 2,000 years ago. The word Advent uh, is the Latin word or or the Greek word from which it comes from is perusia or perusia, perusia, (laughs) uh, which means coming. And it's looking at Jesus came, Jesus will come again, and then Jesus is coming into our lives in our everyday moment. And this is a season of waiting and anticipation. And it's also the beginning of the church calendar, which I love that the church calendar itself starts with the reality of darkness and our need for Jesus to break right through in it. We start in the dark and we move to the light. As Pastor Dr. Glenn Packiam, who leads a church in Colorado Springs, puts it, he says that in Advent, the church stands then between two proclamations. Christ has come and come Lord Jesus. How many people just feel like, even whether you could say it or not, as the scriptures say, the spirit within you is groaning. Come, Lord Jesus, help us. The first arrival grounds our confidence that the second will be answered. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus shape our hope in the return, reign, and renewal to come. Put another way, Advent is the, the fact that there is one who is on the way. And so as I join in with your community in your journey through this Advent season with Bethany at large, I'm excited to talk about the vulnerability of Advent. I'm excited to talk about what peace looks like compared to how the world proclaims that peace is or how peace ought to be or how we see peace being taken or grabbed or stolen or impinged upon, like this, infringed upon other people's sense of reception to it. So if you would, please pray with me, and then we're going to open up the scriptures together. Jesus, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for this season. Thank you for the fact that you, Holy Spirit, are here with us, that you're interacting from within us, that deep is crying out to deep, God, that we get to be one with you as you are one. God, I ask that your peace will come and hold the space, um, hold ground in this space between this place where we reside between the already and the not yet. Be with us in this space. God, speak to us. If anybody's bringing any kind of particular burden, uh, we just lay that down at your feet, God, and we ask you, Jesus, to take it up. Take it up. We're gonna lift you up. And from that, God, may we find peace in you. We pray this in the wonderful and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so the passages that we're gonna look at today are, are two. First is Luke 1, 78 through 79. It's part of Zechariah's song, uh, which is this song singing about his son, John the Baptist, who is coming into the world, this fulfilled, beautiful blessing that God gave to people who were unexpected, who had faithfully served and then even like made a huge mistake when God showed up. So much so that God silenced Zechariah, but then Zechariah is finally able to open up his mouth again 
and proclaim prophecy, proclaim truth of what God is about to do. And here's what it says at the end of that prophecy, at the end of that song, verses 78 and 79 in Luke chapter one. It says, because of the tender mercy of our God. Y'all feel that? Maybe not. Maybe you're like tender mercy, more like brutal nightmare. These last two years have not felt like that. Well, because of that tender mercy, whether you feel it or not, by which the sun, rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Zechariah chose to believe in spite of much of the evidence, in spite of much of the longing of his life, in spite of the brokenness of the system that he is contained therein. And he's serving God faithfully for years and years and years. Even so much so that he's actually right outside the Holy of Holies. He can't even enter into the fullness of the presence of God. Even still, he believes that something's coming. This promise is being fulfilled. And he chooses to believe that peace is coming to make all things new. And that his son is going to proclaim this peace. Well, then that peace comes. Quickly, we pick up in Luke chapter two and we hear the story of the arrival of peace himself. Here's what it says in Luke chapter two, starting in verse one. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus, stand up individual. <clears throat> no, it's, it's not, it's not. Caesar Augustus himself issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available to them. You might hear that and go, yeah, 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 I know, totally. I hear it. I hear it every year. Same story. Yep. Read it to my kids. I feel disconnected to it. It doesn't resonate. It's just like, oh yeah. Yep. That happened. And how incredibly profound it is that peace himself would break into darkness, but do so by vulnerable means that don't look anything like the way that the world declares peace is garnered. It doesn't look anything like it. In fact, the naming of the Caesar is basically saying the most dominant person with the most dominant means is saying, here's the way to, to declare peace, which is to account for everybody so much that you can continue to oppress them. And yet, somehow, some way, in the midst of this mess comes the savior of the world who is peace himself. It should actually be profound and crazy to us, but we're kind of in this weird, tricky spot where we're like people who, for the most part, are in positions of power in the world. People who are coming from a place and a posture of like, oh yeah, we have citizenship in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And I know there's all sorts of issues and things, but in reality, our presumption is more likely aligned with the reality of those who are Roman citizens than it is with those who are oppressed 
in that time and place. But don't let me get started because I got a lot else to talk about. So this first arrival of Jesus is setting uh, him to enter into a world that is not a world of peace. However, it claims that it is. So history would tell us this is the time period of what's called as Pax Romana. Anybody familiar with this? Any historians in the room who are like, yeah, nerd alert. Here we go. Pax Romana is the time period in which Caesar Augustus uh, proudly took the realm of, of the throne, right? Watch the throne, as Jay and Kanye would say. He took it, he had it, he held it. He basically instantiated a time period of peace and tranquility, economic prosperity, uh, power control, and a world that had been up in flux for a long time of who's going to take the throne um, after Julius Caesar. Um, I mean, even Cleopatra's part of the story. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting pieces in this story. But what's crazy is it's a counterfeit peace, much like the peace that we declare in our world today. It's a counterfeit peace. The places in which we try to find peace and we declare are our peace and even do so subconsciously are much like the same way that the Roman government at the time said, peace is here. In fact, they would do this thing. You might've heard the word gospel isn't a Christian term, but it meant a Roman uh, military would come in, take over a town and say, the gospel of Caesar is here. You have no rights. You have no existence. You do not matter anymore. Caesar is here. Good news is here. And the idea was that you're at peace now because you're dominated. Interesting. That sounds like a baby in a manger in a place that doesn't count by accident because they can't really even get a place to stay for the night. That sounds a little bit different. So in some sense, what we see in Jesus' arrival is that biblical peace is actually antithetical to worldly peace in Jesus' moment. But I would believe and say that it's also antithetical to what we declare is peace in our own moment. Just the setting of his birth is chaotic. He's in an animal trough. He's in a place that he shouldn't ought to be as the king of the world, the prince of peace. And again, you're like, oh, that's so trite and cute and interesting. It's not supposed to be interesting. It's supposed to be subversive. It's supposed to tell us that that God so identifies with the brokenness of our experience and a lack of peace within it that he'd actually be born into a lack of peace and into a place that is a place of uh, no peace whatsoever, which is an animal pen. So let's talk about what peace is not. I joked about it earlier, but peace is not our Christmas season in America. Can I get an amen? In fact, uh, there's a study that came out that just basically said that it's like the most stressful time of the year for people and the time of most anxiety, uh, whether it's relationally, right? You love going home, spending time with your family that triggers you like you've never seen. You're like, good to see you, uncle, for the one time a year. So love your racist commentary. This is fantastic. I'm so glad we're here together. Merry Christmas. Or it's like, you know what I should do? I should go into debt by spending a bunch of extra money so that I can one-up my gift last year so that the people in my family like me. I don't know. I mean, they really, they deserve it. I mean, I don't, I don't want them to be unhappy with me. So much anxiety, so much lack of peace in our Christmas season. Let's just talk about the current condition of our hearts. I believe, and statistics would say, that we are going to enter into a second form of a pandemic, which is a mental health crisis, an emotional health crisis, 
that we are gonna be dealing with forever. We love to talk about, yeah, how's the pandemic affecting you? But we have no idea the amount of trauma that's going to be uh, going forth for the next decade at least beyond. Our lives are being shaped by this time that is filled with depression and anxiety. In fact, 25% of folks said, um, or there was an increase by 25% of anxiety and depression in 2020 alone. That means that there's about 40 million people in America who suffer from actual clinical anxiety, which is about 20% of our population at this current time. So peace then, what is it? Well, it's, again, a few things that it's not. It's not the current condition of our hearts. It's not um, the absence of conflict. Let's talk about that. We all like, man, things would be fine if I just didn't have broken relationships. Well, that's not peace. That's just the absence of something. Peace is also not eliminating. I know there's this kind of moment that we're in that like, uh, you know, is the, the joy of tidying up, right? We love the idea of minimalism. So let's just get rid of it. Let's just eliminate all things, including people who affect my self-care. Let's just eliminate them. Get them out. All the introverts said, can I get an amen? It's not that. It's also not controlling. Many of us don't realize how compulsively we're like, I know what I'll do. Instead of getting rid of the things, I'll just make sure that I micromanage whatever is in my life because then I will feel peace. Doesn't work for me. I try it all the time. Again, ask my beautiful children. They'll be like, dad, we're children. We're trying to exist in the world. And you're like, huh, trying to control. That's me. So I'm glad I'm alone in that. Cool. Uh, peace is not grasping. Peace is not grasping for something out there that once you get it, that job, that amount of money in your bank account, that status, that notoriety, that influence, whatever it is you think that's out there that once you get it, that's not peace. And peace is not peacekeeping. Peace is an active thing. It's not just merely a defensive or a scarce thing. Just gotta keep the peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. And that's hard for us to hear because we love it. We are good Pacific Northwestern, having no conflict, avoidant, avert, just, oh, like I don't want to interact with conflict. I will, I'll keep the peace. I'll never say anything that might cause someone to not look upon me favorably. All right. So then what is peace in the scriptures? Well, peace uh, in its most you know, clear form starts in, in the Old Testament and it means he, in Hebrew, it's the word shalom, which means uh, completion or restoration. It's an integration of parts put together. It's a term that comes from like a wall, right? So if a wall had shalom, it would be a wall that was uh, without kind of brokenness within it. It was contained, it was held together. It was a structural term. But there's different examples that we find throughout the scriptures. And I'm just going to quick pass through some of these. Um, Job goes and finds out that his things are in order in Job 5. He say, make sure his tents are secure, that nobody's jacked his stuff. Job has shalom. He has his things. Things are in order. So there's some part of that. David goes to his comrades who are in battle and says, are y'all good? You're doing well? Okay, go. Cool. You've got Shalom right? It was a common greeting. It's also something that when Solomon, coming back to the structural terms, when the temple was completed, it had shalom because it was the way that it ought to have been. It was the process had found some sense of conclusion. And then ultimately, shalom is a promised Messiah. And this is the passage that we most often associate with Advent. Uh, Isaiah 9 talks about this promised king to come. And skipping ahead to verse six, you know, for us, to us, a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his 
shoulders. He has structural integrity. He's a person of shalom. He's one that can be relied upon. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Shalom. Of the greatness of his government and shalom, peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it. Jesus has the structural integrity to reveal to us what shalom looks like, even if it's as a vulnerable baby, right? It's not that, you know, he didn't cry, no tear he made. It's that he was it. He is shalom. He is our peace. In uh, the New Testament, the term is um, erene, which basically means that uh, it's more, you know, in some sense, more forward active because Jesus has um, embodied it. And now we're describing and understanding what peace looks like. A couple ways to describe it is that peace arrived at Jesus's birth. Luke 2 puts it like this, um, as the angels themselves proclaimed and sang, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, Irene, peace has come to those on whom his favor rests. Biblical peace then shines light on those under the weight of darkness. So much so that the the glory of the Lord shines because angels can't help but proclaim that this one who is our peace is glorious. But don't miss it. Please don't miss it. Don't miss how incredible this is. Henry Nouwen puts it like this, this subverting, upside-down, vulnerable way that this baby himself, who is God, is our peace. He says, keep your eyes. This is what he said, um, Uh, You know, Henry Nouwen has long since passed, but he's a hero of mine. He said, keep your eyes on the Prince of Peace, the one who doesn't cling to his divine power, the one who refuses to turn stones into bread, jump from great heights and rule with great power, the one who says, blessed are the poor, the gentle, those who mourn and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers and those who are persecuted in the cause of up." rightness. Keep your eyes on him who became poor with the poor, weak with the weak, who was rejected with the rejected. He is the source of all arene. That's it. You're like, I know. Sunday school answer, Jesus. He is our peace. And Jesus offers real peace to our world. John 14 says, peace I leave with you, Jesus to his best friends in his last meal. My peace I give to you. And I do not give you as the world gives you that peace. Remember the one we talked about? That's not peace. I don't give you that kind of peace because it doesn't work. Instead, Jesus gives a peace that doesn't let our hearts be troubled uh, or be afraid because ultimately our peace is one who is coming and will arrive again. You see, Jesus becomes then peace for followers. Ephesians 2 puts it like this, for he himself is what? Our peace. Jesus himself is our peace. He has made the two groups one. He has reconciled broken things without shalom, without Irene, brought them together, including races, including people groups who had no willingness to associate with themselves uh, apart from Jesus. Jesus' peace then takes wholeheartedness. This is the tricky part because Jesus says, here's my peace, I give it to you. Whatever you need to find peace in me, I'll cast out the things that make you afraid. And then he says, but... Through the Apostle Paul, make every effort then to keep the unity of the Spirit through what? Through the bond of peace. Peace isn't something that we just like receive and go, I'm 
so glad I'm done. Now we're good. You know it's not that way because we are living and we're breathing and we're an organism that is on the move with other ones just like Jesus himself who had to hold on to, who had to make every effort to reside in the peace of the triune community of love himself. So what does that mean for you? What does it mean for you to make every effort then to hold on to the peace that you have been given? What does it mean for you to do that? Tim Mackey from the Bible Project says that essentially the ways that we are called to do this are to uh, embrace humility, patience, and bearing with one another in love. So can we truly have this? Can we have this peace? Because it's one thing to have it, and it's another thing to live into it, right? There are plenty of gym memberships that I've spent money on and not used for an entire calendar year, but I was glad that I, you know, always had a place to go where I could make peace with the fact that I did not live into it. I had it, but I didn't use it. What does peace look like for you? What does it look like to cling to, to hold tight to, to embody peace from the inside out? Because that's the difference between Jesus and us is that I think in a lot lot of ways, we want to take peace from the outside and bring it into our lives. But Jesus always talks about how it's an overflow from the inside out. Jesus himself in John 13, it says about him that he knew where he was from and where he was going. So then in his peace, In the midst of sitting at a table with a traitor, he gets up and he washes feet. Matthew 28 says that Jesus himself, uh, all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. And then he went and said, go. So for us to have peace, to reside in it, to make every effort to cling to grass, to hold on to it in such a healthy way that we give it away means we need to reside in it. It's an output, church. It's not an input. Peace is an output. It's not an input. As Scott Erickson, Honest Advent, some of I think you all have been looking at this as part of your time together in this season, describes it. Jesus shows us that peace is instead achieved by offering your naked, vulnerable self as a way of loving that overcomes fear, selfishness, greed, and death. Take it from me, church. If you want to find your way to a lack of peace, cling to those things. Because I got testimonies for days about how much that's my default mechanism and it steals, kills, and destroys my life and my heart. And I just plead with you to not let the fake peace of the world, the counterfeit, steal your shalom, steal your arene, and lead to you being an anxious presence in the world. Because as from that anxious presence, we cannot give away the peace that we hope to receive. We cannot be agents of that peace in the world as Christ has called us to be. Because when he gave you his peace and he left it with you and you were the plan, that means that you and I get to, we get the privilege of living into the peace, but we have the responsibility of living it out on earth as it is in heaven. Peace then, church, is a work of the Holy Spirit on our lives and through our bodies. God is faithful and will make peace. That's a promise. Jesus, when he returns in that second coming, in that arrival, and in the meantime, Jesus promises that he will make all things new. The Holy Spirit is doing that within you and around you. Don't miss it. Don't lose heart. Don't believe because you don't feel the peace that it's not there. God is faithful and he will make peace on earth 
and in our hearts as it is in heaven. He's restoring everything from the systems of systematic ills, the brokenness, the shame, the trauma, the hurt within us and around us. God is reconciling all things. And he has given you the ministry of his peaceful reconciliation. He's given us that ministry. So we get to live into it. So how do we live into it? I just want to give you a couple quick practices that I think will cultivate the peace within us that it would flow out from us. And so a couple of those practices, one uh, might sound funny and interesting because I'm supposed to get up here as the guest preacher. This is a little behind the curtain, fourth wall. What we do is we always ask whoever is, is gone. We say, hey, pastor, tell me, what do you want me to tell them that you've been trying to tell them that they're not doing? What do you want me to tell them? And Prentice was like, you just tell them whatever you want, man. You, you got it. So, so good thing is he didn't want me to bully you. So that's good to know, uh, you know, bully you into peace. No, what I actually want to encourage you to do is try softer. That's the first practice. I think most of the time when we cling and we grasp and we pull and we, oh, I'm going to get peace and I'm going to hold on to it so tightly. Good luck with that one. Zechariah, the prophet, put it like this. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Peace is more about reception than it is about grabbing something for yourself. So let's try softer, church. Let's practice the art of being people who are merely receptacles of the peace of God coming and living within us. And then John, I'll I'll just share this real quick. I'm running out of time, but it's okay. John Wesley put it like this in a prayer that I would encourage you to maybe perhaps pray. Um, If any of you want it, I can send it to you or you can Google it. Um, Here's what it says. Uh, John Wesley said, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will, rank me with whom you will, put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. That to me sounds like operating from a place of peace. It is well, Lord. However you have your will, let it be done and I will try softer. I will receive it. A second practice I wanna give you is just to encourage you. Don't let this be a message just for your own personal, individual relationship with God. Give peace like you're made of it. Any ounce of peace that God has given you Don't live in scarcity and go, okay, I'm gonna hold tight to this peace because I finally got it. The way that you will continue to reside in the peace of God is by giving it away because the one you follow said, my peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give you. I do not give you peace like the world that says, hold tight. I give you a peace that you may give it away. Church, what would it mean if we became people who gave it away like we were made of it? I think people like Roxanne would receive and experience that very same peace like she did even in the midst of her worst moment because those baristas, all they could do and see is care for her and her pain and her lack of peace. I don't know who that is for you, but may the Lord grant you his peace that you would give it away. Please pray with me.
Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this beautiful church. Bethany, West Seattle, I bless you in Jesus' name with peace. By the authority of the Holy Spirit in me and in each of us as your followers, we have that. We hold tight to that peace uh, in a way that isn't uh, a clinging or a grasping, but we say, yes, Lord. You are our peace and we wrap our arms around you. And then we give away all that you've given us because that's what you did first, Jesus. You were our peace and you came in the most vulnerable way possible. You submitted yourself to us, to your parents, to the world that wanted to kill you. And yet in that, you declared peace to that very same world in our dying and our loss and our death. Bless this church with peace in Jesus' name, amen.